0: Father, we do thank you this morning for your abundant grace, and we thank you, Lord, for your word, and once again, we call upon your Holy Spirit to enlighten us to the truths of your word that we might not only have understanding, but uh, that we might appropriate your grace to apply these truths as we understand them from your word. We give you thanks. We ask that you guide us this morning and that through all that we do, that you be honored and glorified. We just thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the reasons that I specifically asked for the youth to be here throughout this series, which I'm thankful that they've been able to endure this uh, session um, and series, but I wanted you to sit through the whole thing primarily because I wanted you to get a biblical view of what marriage is and what it should be according to God's design. Now we went to Genesis to see the original plan for marriage, and then we we examined Ephesians, Colossians, and first Peter, and we've examined many texts that apply to marital relationships, as well as family relationships and relationships in general. As we look at this, the question may arise at some point, what is the parent's role and what uh, are the children being prepared for? Well, the ultimate goal for parenting, for a Christian parent, is for their child to have a heart towards God. And Paul exhorts the fathers in this way in Ephesians 6. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The fundamental motivation for everything that we do That is, our discussions, our prayers, our instructions, corrections, all the things that we teach are for the purpose that we would give our children the opportunity to understand who God is and hopefully see them come to the knowledge of Christ. Now, we recognize that the work of salvation is God's, and yet the responsibility of the parent is to direct our children in that way. Hopefully, as parents, we work ourselves out of a job. That is, at some point, uh, there's going to be the point of emancipation. That is, the teens will reach a point in their lives of maturity, hopefully, that they'll be able to be mature enough to go out from under the direct authority of their parents. And we, we have our prayer and hope that we've trained them well enough to, for them to <clears throat> make mature decisions and that we're observing them in the process of sanctification. As we see that, we know that that's not the finished product because in sanctification, we're being sanctified until we go home. We're in the process of growing in the knowledge of Christ. He's transforming us into the image of his son. Well, we could spend a lot of time on that subject of sanctification, but I want to ask this question. What about those who uh, are in their teens and uh, or early 20s and are considering marriage? We want to examine that a little bit this morning. And... Uh, we're not going to do an exhaustive study, but we want to look at it in terms of biblically. What do we as parents consider? How do we prepare our children, our youth, and young adults for that decision? And what would we consider biblically to look for? Uh, we may ask this question first. Does, and I asked this a few weeks ago, does everyone get married? And the answer to that question from the youth was no. And we have from Scripture in Matthew 19, the Lord giving instruction to his disciples in verse 12 says this. Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are some who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who was able to accept this. Let him accept it. Then the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 addresses the Corinthian church in this way. He says, for I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in one manner and another in that. So in one sense, Paul was wishing that all believers could be unmarried, even as himself. Now, he wasn't condemning marriage because he goes on to promote that and say that it is biblical for a man to do so. He was simply saying that for a man to be, or a man or woman, not to be married, they have a greater freedom a freedom to serve God unencumbered by the responsibilities of marriage. Because later on in that same chapter, he gives a more clear or more lucid understanding of that. He says this in verses 32 through 34. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord how he may please the Lord. But he who is married carries about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married carries about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So Paul was simply stating that to be unmarried is to fully give yourself for the purpose of service unto the Lord. To be married is to uh, be able to be meeting the needs of your spouse. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he was not in any way condemning marriage because marriage is that of the Lord's ordination. He created marriage. He designed it for specific purposes and he's glorified through that as people apply the biblical principles that he has given us for marriage. So, Paul here is just simply saying that some will get married, some won't. Some will exercise that of singleness when they have the calling or purpose of God to serve him in fully that way. Now, we may... See people who have remained single, so we, <clears throat> we may wonder well, are they, do they have the gift? And referring back to Paul in verse, uh, in the first part of chapter 7, where he refers to that gift of singleness. Well, oftentimes God hasn't provided a spouse. for an individual. They may desire to be married, and maybe at some point in time they will be, but they may be in a point of singleness for whatever period God has them that way. Uh, I received a letter about two months ago from uh, someone who was in the mission field. It was a single woman, and she gave me permission to discuss the letter. And she was discussing her experiences as a missionary. She had, she was single. Um, didn't mean that she, quote, had the gift of singleness, but she had not yet found a man who God provided that would meet the qualifications for marriage. So she served the Lord in the field in her singleness. She was unencumbered, had less responsibility. She expressed the benefits of singleness. And also the struggles of singleness. So she what one of her frustrations was um, oftentimes when she would participate in fellowship when she would come back or return to the United States, people would say, Well, do you have the gift? And it would always crush her because it wasn't that she didn't want to be married and it wasn't that she felt she had the gift of singleness because she did have a desire to marry. She desired to have that relationship, but was waiting on the Lord for him to provide that individual. So she, she recognized the struggle, and yet she also recognized that she was totally and completely in God's hands. He would provide the right man at the right time. So there are struggles in singleness, whether a person uh, chooses to be married or chooses, if the Lord enables them by his grace to gift them in that way, to serve him fully. But what about those who desire to get married? We have to consider uh, what some of the prerequisites may be as parents we look at it in terms of that is one of the most important decisions they would make for their entire lives outside of that of their relationship with Jesus Christ because it impacts everything that they'll do. It impacts the entire family. So that decision is a monumentous, monumental decision. It's a huge decision. And of course, uh, when we looked at this series on marriage, we talked about all the essence of what happens in a marriage and how there could be uh, difficulties, struggles, conflict. And we looked at various biblical principles of resolving those. But we have to recognize that it takes work in marriage relationship. Whether you're married for six months or a year, or 50 years. It's an ongoing process where you're always committing yourself to your spouse as unto the Lord. So when you consider marriage, oftentimes um, I've had the privilege of a couple of times doing premarital counseling, and I always think it's a blessing when young couple, Christian couples desires biblical premarital counsel to find out whether, you know they're qualified and whether this is the right decision that they're going to make, and uh, they're seeking the Lord in that. Oftentimes they consider and look at marriages and look at the odds and look at the facts of one out of every two marriages in this country fail, end up in divorce. They look at that and optimistically say, well, that's not us. We'll never come into that, fall into that category because we love each other. Well, you have to examine that pretty carefully because oftentimes couples think they're in love with each other. And to the degree that they understand that they may very well be. But you really don't discover Uh, the depth of that love, until it's tested. So as couples that have been married for some time or perhaps lost their spouse, we understand that there's a lot of trials in marriage, but marriage indeed is a blessing from the Lord. So what do we consider here? Uh, From the world's perspective, um, it tears down everything that has to do with a biblical relationship. Isaiah said this, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Paul, when he was addressing the Philippians, said, For me to live is Christ, to die is to gain, is gain. As we consider God's perspective on marriage, it's the total antithesis of what the world looks at. We have to consider how uh, the world would never encourage a woman to submit to her husband. Or the world would never encourage a husband to love their wives in such a way as to be sacrificial. And yet God commands that of the husband. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave his life for her. So as we consider these aspects of the high standard that God holds in a marital relationship, we want to impart those to those of our youth, our young adults, who are considering marriage. We don't... uh, We don't always have the opportunity to examine that potential candidate as close as we would like to in the event that there, uh, we have a, a youth who is considering marriage. They may, um, have come to know that individual through school or college or, um, even going off into the mission field. And so oftentimes parents don't always have a full picture of what this potential candidate for husband or wife may be. So when we consider that, how do we prepare our youth or young adults if they are even considering that of marriage at some point, which not everyone would. But what do we look for? What do we hold as a standard? How do we glean from Scripture those truths which would apply to picking and qualifying an individual for marriage? Think about this. A young couple very much in love or infatuated with each other, fall in love. They go to their parents and ask permission. They go to a pastor and go through biblical counseling, and they have the highest optimism that they are sure that this marriage is from the Lord and they're going to join together. And they're perhaps not considering um, too much beyond, well, she's a Christian and he's a Christian, so they both attend church. Their families know each other, and yet um, he does go to another church, and she attends the local church with her parents. And so they think, well, you know, that's not too too bad. There's not much difference. But what, let me ask you this. What if one of the churches is a Reformed church teaching Biblical principles from a Reformed theology and that of the potential spouse is going to an Arminian church. You think that might cause any kind of a conflict in their relationship at some time in their marriage? Their theological perspectives? You bet. It would be a great source of contention. So what happens? if you have these two different theological perspectives, well, the couple may go, well, we're not unequally yoked. Really? What do you mean you're not unequally yoked? Well, we're both Christians. We both believe that we're saved and we love the Lord and we want to serve him. But they have a whole distinct difference in their theology and even in doctrinal practices. What about stewardship? I, um, a couple of years ago, uh, an ex- somebody who I know that doesn't live or go to this body, but uh, they were going to get married. Now, the young lady who was going to get married was very strong in her conviction about biblical stewardship. That is, she believed that you should live within your means. You should not in any way, you should try to avoid any kind of indebtedness that would encumber the marriage relationship or their service unto the Lord. The spouse, a young Christian man who was a very nice young man, he didn't have any principles of stewardship. He came from a family that did a lot of, Recreational activities, they, they bought boats, trailers, recreational vehicles, and most of the time they would purchase them, uh, through loans. So they, they had a lot of debts, they didn't have any conviction about indebtedness, and they never talked about these things until just about a week before the marriage. Then there was a great meltdown. <laughs> It was like it was a scene out of a movie, almost I guess. Uh, But it was it was sad in a way because the individuals had a lot of common ground, but they never discussed that. They didn't discuss if they had children, if the God, the Lord gives them children, would they homeschool? Were they public school? Would they How, you know, they didn't discuss those things. These are areas in which we have to have the ability to help our children realize that those are big decisions. These are where you are yoked together in mind, in spirit, and in biblical truth. So as you consider all the aspects of being yoked, it's not just that you say, well, I'm a Christian, and I, this, this girl that I'm going to marry is a Christian, and we love each other. I know she's faithful to go to church. Her parents have been Christians for many, many years. It isn't just that. It's knowing the individual as much as you can. It's knowing what their biblical views are. Being able to discuss those biblical views on the essentials, on Christian essentials and doctrinal views on what you believe from the Word of God. They should be able to be aligned in those views. They should be able to uh, examine those things freely without any encumbrance to decide whether or not, you know, are we really on the same page here? I mean, are we going together together and joining together, and are we going to serve the Lord together in this way, and are we truly equally yoked? So it isn't a matter of just finding and experiencing this wonderful individual who has a testimony of saying they're Christians. It's a matter of what that is. So let's let's examine a couple of these areas and uh, let's consider what some of the marriage commitments should be. First, the priority of the marriage relationship in Christ is that you're both growing in Christ. That is, that you are unencumbered by any kind of an ongoing besetting sin, that you have a good relationship, a growing relationship with the Lord. That your purpose, one of your purposes in this marriage is to develop a relationship in the marriage that is a partnership which is equal in the Lord. That is that your desire is to serve him together with your lives. Um, you know, we can be very deceived by our emotions, and oftentimes, um, you know, we look at Second Corinthians 6 and Paul warns to be not unequally yoked with an unbeliever, but oftentimes, uh, we come across individuals who say, You know, this person is that close to getting saved. I mean. He's starting to come to church with me and uh I know he's just going to accept the Lord. So rather than understanding that you know that no one knows who or is going to accept the Lord, no one knows who is the elect except the Lord himself. We can witness to people, but we cannot join in a relationship and especially when you consider marriage with an unbeliever. Now we have to recognize that oftentimes um, two people will get married and they're unbelievers when they get married. One will become a believer and then you have an one that's not a believer. Um, that was a case. Um, actually, Marsha was saved before I was, but when we were married, neither of us were believers. So there are cases in any marriage in which a, uh, Christ, a person will become a Christian after they're married. One of the other may be unsaved. But for a Christian seeking marriage, for them to even pursue or in consider a relationship would be totally out of God's will with somebody who is unregenerate. It's prohibited by Scripture. So we can't uh, try to give any encouragement. In fact, we should teach our children, our youth, uh, these principles to the point where there's not even that realm of consideration. The heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it, Jeremiah says. So we have to understand here, this whole aspect of uh, discerning God's will for marriage is that of, Prayerful consideration, but also looking at biblical qualifications. So let's consider some of the other biblical qualifications. Um, when you have somebody who is uh say we have a member of the family who is going to college and they're uh, they're believers, they've exhibited that, and at some point. They meet somebody and they consider that individual for marriage. What would you have hopefully been able to give them prior to that time? Because at that time, if you're hoping to be an influence, it's a little bit late. You've missed that opportunity. Once they're out of the home and they're making decisions as young adults on their own, there's very little influence that you can have directly. You can pray for them, you can reach out to them, and you can even offer counsel to them, but you don't have any direct authority over them if they're out on their own as adults, young adults. But you can still have influence. So what would you consider uh, important to impart to your children when they're under your authority within the home? And how would you raise them in the understanding of marriage and singleness? What are some of the primary considerations that we might consider? Any thoughts? Thomas. Uh, the idea of biblical principles override feelings and emotions. Especially at a time of life. Okay. Very good. Thomas said that... Um, Our feelings and emotions really can't dictate our decisions here. We have to base our decisions upon Scripture, absolute truth. Brian. Our daughters. The first thing that I've instilled in them is that the young man that they may be considering, uh, you want to know that he loves and adores the Lord Jesus Christ, central and first, above anything else in their eyes. And out of that will rise. I feel that the centrality of that relationship must be that Jesus Christ is imminent in their lives as Lord and Savior. Okay, good. The key point here that Brian brings out is essential to our relationship with our spouses, and that is their relationship with Christ is the central, most important consideration. Is that individual? Uh, living a godly life, is it evident? And how do we uh, verify that? We could be a part of the fellowship or know those individuals in fellowship with them, but we have to examine that enough to have an understanding. We just don't um, learn that through a casual relationship. It comes through the knowledge, and I know Brian personally knows this young man that's uh, engaged, or going to be engaged, they're engaged, and he knows him quite well. They have lengthy discussions about the Lord. He knows as much as he can about the man, and that's something that's important for parents. If, If that individual, say in the case of a parent of a daughter, if they're um, prospective son-in-law is able to be in a community where you can get to know him, it behooves us to be able to get to know that individual and know everything about him that you can. Not just where they go to church or that uh, superficial knowledge, but as much knowledge as we can to understand their walk, what their priorities are, what their desires are, what their goals are. All those things are a reflection of who they are. If their goal is career, if their goal is financial gain, if their goal is personal fulfillment, then we can see very clearly that their focus is not centered on Christ. If their goal is centered on Christ, then we know that they have a heart for Christ. We have to also realize that they're, when a young man and woman come to the place of leaving home, they're not fully mature because we're all being sanctified. But we can see that they're growing, and we can see evidence of that. What's another area to consider once we've established that that person is a believer? What are some of the important uh, areas that a young couple should consider in their marriage relationship before they're married, Jenny? and know where he's going and if that something she's going to want to follow? Excellent. <laughs> okay. All right, what Ginny is saying here is a very uh, crucial area. The man's role in the marriage is that of the authority, the leader, the provider. Is this individual someone whom she can trust that will be the spiritual leader in their family, that will be the provider? Is this individual demonstrating that characteristic in his life already? Is he living in such a way that he's a responsible individual? That he's willing to take on that responsibility? Have you even discussed that? Has it even been a consideration? Peggy. Joyce, spending time together, doing things together, and, and not if they have the same thing on the biblical base, they can, that will grow, and they will become extremely good friends, and they will do things differently than if they're not good friends. Okay, did you all hear what Peggy said? The importance of the relationship on the level of their friendship and their relationship with each other. Oftentimes, um, if a couple doesn't have time to really get to know one another, they may have different sets of friends and when they come together, those friendships and those activities that they do are foreign to their actual uh, current friendship. So a lot of times, couples that get married and they don't have any common ground. Well, we're both Christians. We love each other, but I really don't like my husband that much. I mean, he's not all that funny. He isn't that... We we can have these attitudes formulate in a relationship based on just superficial things. Love is what brings the relationship. And it's not... The uh, phileo love, it's the agape love that we're called to. And that's the love that's unconditional. When we look at the text in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, in verses 4 and 5, talking about the aspects of love, some translators put those in an adjective form, but they're actually in the Greek form, they are verb tenses. All those are active. Those are active evidences of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not easily offended. Those are all act, actions that demonstrate God's love. Those are things in which we can't replicate outside of Christ. As we have that kind of love for one another, the relationship deepens. It isn't superficial, just personality-wise. It deepens to a point of a union that can't be broken. You see, when two become one through a covenant, there's a physical union, but there's a deeper union than that. There's a merging of two hearts together in Christ. And that agape love is something that God alone gives us and as we express that in marriage, it is a process, as we're being sanctified, we're growing in that ability to love our spouse in that way. So it isn't uh, the kind of love that the world experiences. It's a love in which God himself gives us. So we may say, well, wow, I want that for my kids, but I kind of like that for myself. We can all experience that kind of love, and we should. We should be building our relationship in such a way with the Lord primarily first, but with each other in Christ, to come to that place where we exhibit the kind of love that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 13. So let's turn there for a moment and look at it just briefly. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Now, suffering long, uh, and other versions, give the word patient. Love is patient. That uh, word is reflected in the original language in the relationship it isn't necessarily just being patient when you're enduring some kind of personal suffering, but it's in a relationship where you are enduring and able to endure a hardship that happens in the relationship. That's what this is referring to in context. So in other words, in a relationship of man and wife, when we talk about being patient or long-suffering, or enduring, it's talking about not putting yourself first. It's talking about putting that other first. They may have practices or idiosyncrasies that we all do that we can easily overlook, or it can become something that would be a wedge in the relationship and marriage. As we look at it from biblical perspective, We're able to endure patiently our spouses because God gives us that ability. We can help them. The wife can be a strength in the area of her husband's weaknesses. A husband can nurture his wife in such a way to build her up, and that's what we should be doing, building up one another. Love is kind. Love does not envy. You know, we should never consider our spouse is uh, a threat to us in any way. We shouldn't ever be competitive. We should always be building our spouse up. But here, love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself or vaunt itself. Um, Oftentimes, uh, and I say this because I'm a man, Men have the tendency to want to have everything done for them. It's always about the man. When really, in marriage, a man should provide such a setting for his wife that she is in a safe place with him, that she can trust him, that she can be, she can have him for a confidant, a provider, and she can feel secure in that relationship. He shouldn't be seeking his own desires, but he should be seeking how he may please and honor his wife. Does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Uh, All those aspects are these qualities and virtues are in the, uh, verb tenses of action. These are all action verbs. These are things that we as Christians should be doing. So as we consider the marriage, as Peggy pointed out how important that relationship is, it isn't that you're just Christians, but that you're Christians that are truly bound together by that commitment in marriage. We live in a an age where... Uh, One out of every two marriages fail. That's a sad commentary in our country. People do not have the understanding of what a commitment to marriage is. It is a commitment until death do you part. It's a lifelong commitment. And as we consider that commitment, we have to recognize that sometimes people break those commitments, and when they do, People are left with broken homes, broken families, and it leaves a whole string of tragedy, which God hates. That's why he says in Malachi, he hates divorce. It's something that brings about so much suffering and so many broken lives that God hates it. So we have to recognize the importance of this commitment And we have to instill that in those of our youth that they understand, if they consider marriage, that it's lifelong. It isn't until, you know, we have a child and then there's more responsibilities. You know, when Marsha and I were first married, they had this uh, acronym called DINKs. You ever heard of that? Dual income, no kids. Both parents working, no children, and I remember, um, you know, those days, you could freely come and go, take vacations, you had a lot of finances that you could utilize for those things. All of a sudden, your wife's throwing up one morning, and uh, the next six months, she's in the same spot when you come home. Pretty soon you have a child, and all of a sudden there's a different aspect to your whole life. Your life changes. You have this blessing of a child, and yet along with that, an additional responsibility. More responsibility to provide for that child. So you can't be quite as... Um, free and easy as you were early on without those children. But what a blessing it is when God brings those children. You see, too often today, some of the, um, and I don't speak of this, and speaking of our body, I'm speaking universally in this culture that we live in. People want to be spontaneous, and when they can't do that anymore, when their finances are cut back or they have any kind of a test, they break down. Marriage is a responsibility. It's a commitment. And more so, it's a covenant between man and woman before God. That covenant is to be kept. So as we think about that covenant, that we have to instill in our youth, that they must understand that, you know, things change. This spouse that you once knew was going to be different at some point. Um, It was interesting. Marsha and I got married. Neither of us were Christians, but we did go to premarital counsel. Go figure. Um, But the individual that counseled us said, you know, marriage is for life. And, you know, at some point your husband might not be so dashing and he may not have hair. And prophetic? Maybe, I don't know. Uh, but he had some good insights, which we looked at after we became Christians, and we thought, you know, this man was trying to really show us the commitment of marriage, and he said that it has to be centered on Christ. That's the absolute necessity of any marriage. So as we consider uh the youth consider marriage at some point, we want to instill to them what this covenant means, what the commitment means, and that there will be struggles, but they can work through that. There will be trials, but you can do that in the Lord. It's His grace and His Word that we appropriate to work through every situation that we encounter in marriage. If not, we're just like the world. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow we die. You know, We have to have more than the ecclesiastical philosophy of what the world gives you apart from Christ. We have to understand that the essence of our lives is to honor God in all that we do. That's our primary goal. So as we raise our children, as youth, as you consider in your young adult years what God may have for you, whether it's singleness or whether it's marriage, recognize that in marriage you can honor God with your lives. But it's a lifelong commitment. And you have to understand that both the husband and wife are to be both in a relationship with the Lord, such as it's known in your life that you are growing in the knowledge of Christ. So we have to be uh, fully aware of that. The aspect of understanding uh, what God wants of us, it's clear in Scripture. We know what to look for in an individual to see whether they're manifesting the fruit of the Spirit or fruit of the flesh. Galatians 5. It's very clear whether they're exhibiting the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. So, uh, parents, we have the opportunity. Grandparents, we have opportunities to be able to share with our grandchildren. By the way, I became a great-grandfather this week, which I'm Quite excited about. Um, You'd never know that, though, would you? (laughs) So let's consider the aspect. If we've gone through this uh, series on marriage, we have to understand that this is God-ordained. It's a blessing. Those that don't marry, that's a blessing as well. We can't look at somebody unmarried and think, well, they're missing out here. No, they have... Greater freedom to serve the Lord. And along with those freedoms, responsibilities. Now, I want to address some things, and we'll perhaps begin this next week. But what about the struggles of singleness? What about the temptations that are faced? How do we deal with that? These are areas in which every team and every young adult, and every adult deals with temptations. So we want to look at from Scripture, how do we battle these? And how do we appropriate God's strength to avoid some of these temptations? Of which, there's probably more temptation now, but we have the same enemy. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, we have computers now, we have the internet, we have all kinds of, Temptation, drugs, um, promiscuity. We're in a society that's rampantly filled with immorality. Much likened to the society in Rome, society in Corinth, Ephesus. When we do biblical studies and do historical cultural studies, we'll see that we're We haven't quite caught Rome yet. We're a close second, though. But when we look at it, those societies were filled with immorality. Divorce rate, rampant. Homosexuality, rampant. uh, Pharmacia, rampant. I mean, there was all kinds of immorality that we see that Paul dealt with. And when we do historical cultural studies of the, that culture, it was, it was a very depraved society, lasciviousness throughout all these cultures in the Roman Empire. So we'll uh, examine how do we appropriate God's grace in a society in which we're permeated with immorality all around us. Good input today. I want to close. I went a little bit longer than we should and uh, look forward to our service. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the ordination of marriage that you yourself have designed and ordained. And we thank you, Lord, for the gift of singleness for those that aren't married. We thank you for your provision for widows. And we thank you for your love and concern for those that are without husbands. And Lord, we just pray for those right now that you would lift them up and provide for them through your body and through the covenant relationship they have with you. We look forward to the service as we worship and praise you and look forward to receiving of your word, which we pray that you'd be glorified through. In Jesus' precious name, amen.